This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers clients can earn interest of up to 4.08% on the uninvested cash in their brokerage accounts? That's just one of the many reasons clients use Interactive Brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more globally. Minimize your costs to maximize your returns. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash interest rates. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Central banks boost rates, yet bond yields fall. Powell says the banking system is strong. Yellen says, well, we're not planning on full backups and backstops of all the banks. Double talk and backspeak means to, well, confound and confuse all this and much more on episode number 809 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Well, a very good hello to you and welcome to the Discipline Investor Podcast. Welcome to the last of the first quarter, 2023. March is almost gone, and it seems that the credit crisis is nothing more than a few banks with a little bit of problems that we can clean up with a full backstop from FDIC, although we also saw a huge amount of activity from the discount window where the Fed is pretty much doling out money. As a matter of fact, there was a record amount of money that was taken and loaned to banks via the discount window, the availability where the Fed can fund the banks, bigger than we saw in 2008. To put this all into the proper perspective, this little bank issue that was really, you know, a couple little banks and, you know, this was a, a very segregated and isolated event that happened. It seems that it's a much more broad-based situation where the banks were scurrying to get as much funds as possible as they were seeing substantial amount of deposit outflows, even though there was so many discussions coming out about, wow, look at all the inflows that we had. Now, I don't know exactly how that squares, but it makes no sense to me that we don't have a much bigger situation and problem uh, than what's really being described. We're going to get to that. Before we get going, for you first-timers that are listening to this the first time, I'm Andrew Horowitz, and I've been the host in the seat that I'm sitting in. Well, not this seat, but the general vicinity of this seat in the studio. Different microphones, different systems, different seats, different studios. But since 2007, doing this particular show, we say is the longest-running financial podcast that is out there. I'm also founder of Horowitz & Company, which is a money management firm. We give investment advice to our clients. We essentially invest your money for you, Right. We help you find find your way towards financial independence. That's the goal. That's what we try to do. Isn't that what we're all listening for? I mean, I may be entertaining and all, but the fact of the matter is that between my guests, the educational component of what we do here on the Disciplined Investor Podcast, 
is all about the idea of gaining the information that you need for financial success. Now, I've also over the years done things. I want to give you a little bit of trivia, a little bit of tidbit, something that you didn't know or maybe forgot about, especially for those people who haven't listened before. You're going to find out something pretty interesting right now because while I'm, I'm also not only this show I do weekly, but DH Unplugged, that I've been doing that since I think 2008 or so with uh, co-host uh, John C. Dvorak. We do that on Tuesday nights live and we have all sorts of really cool games we play and it's the lighter side of money as I talk about. But two bits of trivia that I wanted to share with you because a lot of people want to know, well, where'd you start? How'd you get this going? Well, I cut my teeth on radio actually back, I guess it was, it was I don't remember if it was 1990 or, or maybe it was 1991. Right about then, uh, I had a show on the radio, on the AM dial, 790 AM, uh, called The Money Doctor Show. It was in Miami. It was a 50,000-watt station, I believe. And uh, we got from Miami to Broward. And maybe if you were lucky, maybe you can get us over in in Palm Beach. Now, a lot of you are saying, what, what, what do you mean, maybe? Well, those are the days that you could only get a signal based on the antenna strength and what you had uh, and how far you were from the vicinity of the source. There wasn't any internet radio back then. It was pretty much you had an antenna that stuck up out of the hood of your car and you would listen to various AM and certain parts of the dial were stronger than others. And AM was oftentimes a little bit better, but yet weaker on some parts of the dial than let's say FM. Anyway, the Money Doctor Show, that was kind of fun. An odd fact that you may not know also, another bit of trivia here, I was the temporary host for about six months or so, on, you got to listen to this, okay? <laughs> I was a temporary host of the Money Girl podcast. Yes, you heard that right. The Money Girl podcast. It was a favor I did for a friend that needed some somebody to fill in because the actual Money Girl quit unexpectedly, and then she scrambled around and said, oh, I need somebody. We knew each other pretty well, and I said, well, okay, in the early days of podcasting, um, you know, us independents out there kind of knew each other really well. So it was kind of an interesting time because we had writers, we described various parts of the money uh, cycle and of investing, and, and it was really interesting. It actually ended up turning into a book deal, which I wrote The Winning Investor's Guide to Making Money in Any Market, and I had The Winning Investor podcast for a long time as well. So lots of little tidbits in there for you to, to check out. Um, that's how that was, again, that was kind of all based on the first book that I wrote called the disciplined investor, essential strategies for success, which really is available either through, um, some sources you can grab it still probably on Amazon. Um, we have probably, I would think we only have about 150 printed books left, which we give out from time to time. And then also, um, in addition to that, there is, uh, an audio book that is currently available. So kind of cool stuff. Anyway, for those of you keeping track, this is the show. Uh, the show now is going to be the last one. This particular show is the last one we're doing in March. And as you recall, I mentioned during my birthday month that I want to give a, a present back. And I committed to anyone that wanted help with their investments. All you have to do is contact me. I will personally work with you to see what's going on. We'll spend some time on a call and figure out what it is that you need done and, and a lot of people have taken me up on that, and that's great. Plenty of people have done that. I'm asking you if you want to do it. Um, I will be there for you personally, 
figuring out what it is that can be done to improve your circumstance or not, um, all you have to do is go over to the Discipline Investor website, thedisciplineinvestor.com, and find a way to contact me. It's on there somewhere. There's also the Contact Us buttons and all that. And then we'll get it and say, hey, you know, you said you could get together. What's a good time? So um, offers available for you. Now, let's talk about what's going on in the market. Shall we talk about some of the things that are happening with regard to the world of finance? Why we are seeing such incredible amounts of volatility? And question is there, I think what everybody's probably asking right now is, is there a risk that we're going to face once again a major credit meltdown and I guess the follow-on question is, you know, is the financial system going to implode? Is it going to disappear? Is, is it going to be that big prediction that was made many years ago about, well, you got to have Bitcoin, alternative assets, and gold and things like that, because you know what? This financial system is doomed. All we've done is papered it with money over the years. We haven't fixed anything, and it's going to be a big problem on a continual, continual basis. And we've done nothing to solve the issues, and all that's going to happen is delay the inevitable. Ah, okay, that's the setup. So what I can tell you is that from what I see right now, there is a good deal of problems in the system. There's no question about that. The fact of the matter is when you look at what is going on right now, particularly in the mid-sized community, maybe to a degree the regional banks, and while the big banks have many of the same problems, they have much more depth, right? They, they, can, go, they can go to the bench and grab up all sorts of, of, of tricks to substitute. In other words, they have depth of ability to gather money through bonds, through various um, other programs where they can raise capital, right? So what we're talking about is a situation in the smaller banks, and really a lot of this was a big deal. And, you know, what had happened was that as, as interest rates started climbing, you know this already, but as a refresher, as interest rates started climbing, many of these banks didn't really see fit to, you know, hedge out inflation risk. I don't know why. I couldn't tell why, because there was a lot of pressure to keep on making money, keep the net interest margins up. There was all this issue that was going on about, of course, the shareholder and back to, once again, the incessant need to please the market. And I blame a lot of that on the media. Now, when I say the media, I'm, I'm really focusing primarily on CNBC, because I think over the years, they've gotten worse and worse in trying to prompt markets to do what they think should be done. and Couching discussions, and not only that, programming, programming discussions to try to get their sense of what they want to move markets the way they want. If I didn't know any better, the production team at CNBC was all about trying to move money for themselves. Somehow figuring a way to move markets in a way that's beneficial for their own pocketbook. I don't know. Maybe not. Crazy speculation that I heard recently. Either way, my problem with them is that they bring on the same people, ask the same questions over and over again. This is just an opinion. You may like it, hearing every single day about what the Fed should be doing. But when it comes to the banks right now, the, the byline is, hey, don't worry, the banking system is strong. It's resilient. You look at things like what's going on in the small banks. Even We talk about the big banks, even though they have a much greater ability to shield themselves. Bank of America, I believe it has $109 billion in losses 
on their bond portfolio. But, 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 hold on. That's only if they market to market. Whoa, mark to market. That's a fancy word and phrase, Andrew. What the hell are you talking about? Mark to market, mark to maturity, mark to valuation. Well, let's stop for a second and, and define this because this is something you need to know. If you ever wanted, you want to sound smart at a cocktail party, start talking about, yeah, the banks really, uh, the big problem that really uh, happened was they had to mark their, they, they had to mark uh, their, their, their bond portfolio to market. Oh, there's a smart fella. What does it mean? Well, let's say, for example, I have an investment and it was, you bought it $1,000. You bought something, I don't care what it is, ABC Widget Inc. investment for $1,000. And now you look at your statement and you look at the pricing and now it's worth $500. You know what you just did? You just marked your investment at the price of the current market and you know what you did? You marked it to market. You marked it to market. So I marked my price at the current value. So that's pretty easy, right? But let's say that the value of that $1,000 investment, right? You say, well, I think it's still worth $1,000. I'm going to put it in my portfolio as a, you know, I'm going to write it in as a thousand. You just marked it to your, your valuation, your, your, your speculative valuation. Okay. That is something that's often done, by the way, in private equity, uh, just essentially value it at whatever you want to value it at because you can't really value things, especially with negative earnings, right? How do you mark something at a value? You mark it at what I think the value is. But then we have bond investments and we can mark them to maturity. You can mark them into maturity. So we had uh, mark to market, mark to valuation, and, and there's different ways of talking about mark to valuation. Mark to market's the big one. Mark to maturity is what we're looking at these days. So let's take some examples of this. So let's say you, you have a bond, one bond, and you purchased it for a, a million dollars. It's due the end of the year in 2040, 12-31-2040. December 31st, 2040, it's going to mature. It's going to be valued at $1 million. And during that period of time, you got some interest on it. But okay, that's not the point. Point is, it's a million-dollar bond. One day in the future, it's going to be worth a million dollars at maturity. It's guaranteed by the full faith and credit of, you know, the, the United States government. Okay, great. Well, if you look at the value for whatever reason right now, interest rates have gone against you, they've gone up, and that bond is worth significantly less today if you were to buy that. It's worth 800000 That's marked to market. So now all of a sudden, your portfolio, you look at it, you're like, wow, I'm down 20%. But you say to yourself, no, 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 no. If I market to maturity, it's still worth a million just sometime in the future. Well, banks were allowed to mark things to maturity and the longer dated bonds um, and they had in their portfolio, they were marking that. No, there was nothing wrong with that, right? But all of a sudden you do a mark to market and you have big problems. So not to worry because now all of a sudden all these companies and these banks have this really upside down and really wonky balance sheet where the deposit doesn't work because they're marketing to market versus market and maturity. And all of a sudden, these big moves on interest rates really hurt their bond portfolios. They didn't hedge out any of the risk. Oh my, well, we can't really look at it from a true balance sheet standpoint from a mark to maturity. We really have to look at it as a mark to market and investors freaked out, depositors freaked out. And all of a sudden that happened, this big gimmick that was created. Well, that's only, you know, forced us to have a new gimmick that's created. 
where the Fed has a new program that will essentially be based for banks that have these problems where they all of a sudden thought that they were okay with the fact that they could look at it and market to maturity, which they can't. They have to market to market for a real sense of what the valuations are and how much they are within the boundaries of stress test material or at least, um, you know, they're looking at uh, of, of, of solvency issues, right? So what they did was the Fed came on and said, you know, look, 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 look what are we going to do? Any of your bonds that are underwater, it doesn't matter. Just sell them to us. We'll give you back the maturity price. So even though that bond's not valued at a million dollars until 2040, you know what? We'll hold it on our books and give you the full value today. Pretty interesting. Another crazy program just to get the bonds off the books of the banks, put them at the treasury uh, slash Fed, and then give back the money to the banks to create liquidity in the system. Don't worry, the cavalry has come once again. So here we are with the Fed Chair Powell out with a 25 basis point hike. Done to save face because obviously, uh, you know, that's a problem telling all of us during the press conference that the banking system is strong and resilient, blah, 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 blah. And that, and that was some press conference last week. I mean, like nothing was going on. Like they... They know they screwed up, but maybe sometime in the future they'll tell us what happened. Maybe not. Maybe they should stop, you know, all the lunching is what I think. Maybe they should actually stop all the speeches, the pre-book deal discussions, and get to work already. Because these guys and gals at the Fed are absolutely embarrassing. They have hundreds of CPAs and CFAs working there. In fact, I took a moment for your benefit. And I went to the website for the Fed to see what under careers are the requirements to be working at the Fed. It's under the career section. So what it said was, I quote, qualified candidates must, must have a bachelor's degree in economics, accounting, business administration, finance, public policy, or international studies with a master's degree and C and master's degree and CPA or CFA strongly preferred and have extensive experience in finance, financial analysis and macroeconomics, preferably related to the banking industry. What a bunch of blowhards. How many times do simple people like you and I see exactly what's going on and scratch our heads and go, uh, how come all these smarty pants can't figure this crap out? when they have more information and that's all they do and that's all the responsibilities are for understanding. How is it that the San Francisco Fed missed all this? And then when asked if it was going to have an investigation, of course we're going to have an internal investigation. Wolf and Hen House. Crazy. But in the end, the Fed, and the banks will always win. You know why? Well, I'm going to tell you why. And this is an important thing to understand, that there is some very twisted logic in what I'm going to tell you. There's some very bizarre, well, that kind of makes sense, even though I don't want it to make sense. But before we do that, I want to talk about interactive brokers. Because interactive brokers has something called global analyst, and it helps you find new global investment opportunities in order to diversify your portfolio and to discover undervalued companies 
that may well have greater growth potential. IBKR Global Analyst, that's what they call it, the IBKR Interactive Brokers Global Analyst, lets you easily compare the relative value of global stocks by things like region, country, and even industry. What I want you to do is find out why smart investors choose interactive brokers. Try IBKR Global Analyst today at ibkr.com slash GA. So I don't know why I feel like I'm shouting today, but I guess I'm really frustrated again. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's something I want to talk to you about. I want to explain a few things here, and I want to talk about the banks and why, in fact, to a degree, we know that the banks always win. And if you find that to be something distasteful, disgusting, and even to a point uh, really rigged, well, that's okay. I want you to think that way. Think about the bank like Vegas. Odds are stacked in their favor, right? How about if we were to describe the bank? And particularly, I want to think about the Fed. And we could use a definition like this, that the bank holds the title deeds and then houses and hotels prior to purchases by the players. The bank pays salaries and gives bonuses. It sells and auctions properties and hands out the paper. And the also gives out the proper title deed cards when purchased by a player. It also sells houses and hotels to the players and loans money when required on mortgages. Sound familiar? Of course it does. The bank, bank also collects all taxes, fines, loans, and interest. Here's the funny thing that you want to listen to. I want you to focus in what I'm about to tell you here, and you know where this is. The bank, this is right from the directions, right from the instruction booklets, the rules of the game. The bank never goes broke. If the bank runs out of money, the banker may issue as much as needed by writing on any ordinary paper. Any of that sound familiar? Do you know what it is? Do you know what I'm getting at here? No, it's not the Fed, but it really is the Fed. No, it's not the FDIC, the government. Oh, but then again, it is. It's the bank rules under the section in the game of Monopoly. In the game of Monopoly. That's exactly what it says. And what, what's interesting about that is it makes sense to a degree that in the end, the ultimate backstop on what we're doing here has to be something that has unlimited potential, right? We, we have to have a, the ability to feel that there is really uh, almost an unlimited because the amount and size and scope of what we're doing right now in the financial sector, in the world, in the economy are so enormous that just having small backstops is not going to be enough. And while when we look at markets right now and still in a bit of disbelief or denial, perhaps, that we are still seeing the S&P 500 near 4,000 on declining earnings and banking issues and interest rates are going down, even though with the Fed raising rates, the Swiss hiking 50 basis points, the UK upping by 0.25, and that was only on Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday of last week, all to show that they think that the financial situation is sound. And all they're doing is, hey, we're just fighting inflation. Nothing to see here about the credit worthiness of the banks. Keep on moving. We're really focusing on inflation. Don't worry about the other stuff. The other stuff's fine. Remember, what they do is they cause, they break, they fix over and over again. They have unlimited funds. The idea of it's a game of confidence that I've talked about a hundred times that we are really all based on the full faith and credit of rather than backing it by something. And that's why a lot of people like to have and why we hold gold and silver 
in our portfolios. And in a way, you have to realize that right now what's going on is that many consumers and investors feel that this unlimited funds idea, you know, the banker and monopoly is something of a truth and they don't mind building up all this debt. They believe that if we just look out long enough on a time frame, who cares what the markets are doing today? Right? Does it matter if it's going this stock or this bond or this bank is going up or down? That's not really relevant to what is going to be 20 years from now. So if I believe that there's going to be a higher price 20 years from now, why not just invest? Just get it done. So here we are in a situation where basically people don't have a care in the world about the long term. Unless, of course, you're a shareholder in Credit Suisse or maybe in Silicon Valley Bank. And we have a lot of things that are headwinds. Like, just look at the numbers in the economy you go through. We know that we're a long way from defeating inflation. But still, there's this big desire to keep on funding the markets. Look at the housing market. We know it's cooling, but we're still starting to see some signs that buyers are coming in at every slight drop in rates. Last week, there was a report from briefing.com that showed that existing home sales surged 14% month over month in February to a seasonally adjusted average of uh, was it 4.5 or so million homes, a little bit above the consensus. January was at 4 million, so much better. But what was of interest was the fact that the sales increased on a month over month basis in February for the first time in 13 months, even as total sales were down 22% from a year ago. But there's a reason for the good news, right? which may not be so good after all. We, we may be seeing this news, but wow, that's pretty good on the housing, but okay. Because if you look at the report, we could see that the median selling price on the homes declined for the first time in 11 years, which basically shines a big, fat, bold spotlight on the affordability challenges that have been caused by rising mortgage rates and prospective buyers doubting that the cycle has you know, peaked. So there you go on a little bit of a reality check and maybe not a reality check. The idea that, hey, let's buy houses if rates come down because even though we're, you know, maybe close to a, a peak, who cares? Maybe 20 years from now, it's going to be worth a lot more. The optimists inside of us all are hoping that, you know, things will be better sometime in the future. I mean, we can't go around living our life thinking that things are going to be worse. What the hell? How would that look? You know, we walk around moping and groping about all this idea. Oh, no. Oh, oh, this, it's going to be terrible. How does that get us anywhere? Human nature basically takes over and says, hey, you know what? we got to think about some of the, the good things that could be out there and things will get better. How much worse do they get? Right? That, that's what starts all major rallies from the bottom of the market base. That's what starts short squeezes. But when we're in a situation right now where we have um, a Fed that's trying to bring back confidence, and on top of that, somewhat of unlimited backstops, even though uh, Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said, nah, not so fast on that, which really sunk the markets uh, right after uh, Powell's speech last week. It's a big issue because there's a lot of headwinds. 
But a lot of people are just saying, well, the hell with that, which I think is going to yield in the short term to the negative because a lot of people are going to get busted on the thought that there's no further problems, the banking industry is strong, there's no contagion. I'm not so sure about that. That's why we have our portfolio still higher levels of cash, leaning on certain sides of the market, inflation protection and alternatives, and even shorts in our managed growth strategy, for example. So all those things come together with the idea that, you know, things may not be as good as they seem to be. So now what? With all this in mind, now what? Where do we go? Do we just use the 2008 to 2020 playbook? Which is pretty simple, right? Interest rates down, we buy tech. When rates are going down, simple. Oh yeah, no problem. We go buy some bonds and hold them for a while and wait for the maturity. Or do we need to go back maybe... I don't know, to the 70s or 80s for a better analog at what's going on right now with a Fed that is doing their best to crush inflation in a time when it seems like the unemployment situation, oddly enough, is strong as can be. Last week, we saw another great sub-200,000 unemployment claims number and, and, and continuing claims really are not backing off too much or increasing, I should say. So it's all seemingly pretty solid. So which way do we go? Do we think that rates are going to come down because now we're going to go into a recession and all of a sudden the Fed's going to back off? How does that look with inflation? I mean, we're talking about massive stagflation under that circumstance, which is the worst thing that can happen. We don't go anywhere. I don't think we use either. Why? Well, is this time different? Well, every time's different. It's always a little variation of something that rhymes, but maybe doesn't exactly have the same look and feel. I mean, it's got to worry all of us that we have this mounting debt crisis. That's why we're seeing things like cryptocurrencies all of a sudden wake up, perk up, gold, silver flying. Because there's a, re there's a realization that the sovereign debt, the amount that we are amassing on a regular basis now at every single um, potential, like what, what, a couple of hundred billion dollars. The, the, the Swiss National Bank is backing the CSUBS deal. The discount window that was opened and took back about half of what was bought back or retired from the quantitative tightening program. You know, $250, billion over last week. These numbers are huge. I've always said that if the banks fail... Well, the Fed, Treasury, governments will step in and bail them out. But I, but I also asked at the end of that, what happens when there's too much debt with governments? Who's going to who's going to be the lender of last resort in that circumstance? And we've kind of hit the end of the road, baby, haven't we? I mean, guys and gals and those smart folk, the, the, the dumbest smart people that I've ever seen in the government and the Fed are just not grasping that we can't keep spending like this. And again, why gold and silver have perked up so dramatically. Why, why crypto, Bitcoin, and, and Ethereum has done such a great job recently, right? And, and why we are seeing that there is such a substantial question mark into the confidence of what's going on in the banking sector. And why even when we step in with $30 billion, this consortium of banks from J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and all these, why, in fact, we don't see that 
they're getting any respect. So we're going to get a lot more insight on this and what the Fed is doing, aside from playing, obviously playing Candy Crush all day long on their phones as Rome is burning with next week's guest. So just a quick teaser here, Danielle DiMartino Booth, a Fed insider, a crowd favorite indeed, will be here with us next week, shedding some light on what's going on. So uh, I think that's going to be pretty cool. The reason I bring all this up is twofold. First, I want to bring you the facts that are going on so you better understand what's happening, number one. Number two, I want to bring you a sense of reality so that you could properly position your portfolios in these kinds of times. You may not know how to. You may be saying, all right, the hell, this is all great. I love listening to all this great information, but I don't care. I'm going to just leave my portfolio it is. All right, that's fine. That's up to you. Or you may get a little bit of a piece of information that allows you to Make some good decisions and some changes that maybe you should be. Maybe I, I sparked you to do something. So all that together gives you some really good, um, I think, opportunities to to at least spend some time thinking. Let let's let's call this investment yoga time, where you have that opportunity to think through some of the things that are going on, some further clarity, and and um, understanding of of the features of what's happening right now in the market. Bottom line is we're in a bit of a confidence crisis is what is going on. And that doesn't end very quickly, especially with just throwing some money at things, unless the money's really large. And the numbers right now are concerning because we're not starting from a low base of debt and we've already spent all of Papa's money, you know? So one last item uh, that I want to discuss as a reminder, pretty simple, but, but here we are, we are in the midst of tax season, in the heart of it. And there's a few simple things that you can do to set yourselves up for, for the future in, in terms of making really good decisions this time of year and, and at all times of year, but really is that time of year we think about it at least. And I'm talking about IRAs, 401ks, things of that nature, because they give you some great bang for the buck. What's happening here is that you get the opportunity to deposit money into an account that grows <clears throat> basically tax-deferred. In the case of Roth IRAs, you get tax-deferral, you get tax-free on the back end. In the case of an IRA 401k in, in, or non-Roth, uh, you get a tax deduction on the front end. So that's pretty cool. And I'm bringing this up for a reason, because I recently had a conversation with someone about <laughs> why they didn't want to contribute to their company's 401k plan. And I was astounded and, and by the way, this, this, this conversation is not a one-off. I've had this many times with many people. Basically, the company's not providing a match. So the concern is, why the hell would I put money into the plan if the company's not giving me anything back? Honestly, I, I don't understand the logic at all. Because there's no logic there at all to begin with. There's, there's nothing there. It's, it's, it's a, the argument is so thin. If, if you're in that same boat, if, if, if you work for a company and you don't get um, matching, it doesn't, truly it doesn't matter if the company's giving you anything at all. The government is giving you a tax break. Save as much as you can. The 401k, the IRA can benefit you even if there are no other matches and somebody giving money along. If they do, it's even better. But if they don't, so what? Either way, I want you to make sure that you're doing your best 
to maximize and optimize the deposit, meaning put away as much as possible and pick a good portfolio of positions to invest in. I'm telling you, you're going to look back on this conversation and, and this discussion we had right now in, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, and you're going to be like, oh, man, I remember when I started really pushing a lot more money into that 401k plan. Look at what it's amassed to over the years. And then it was all due to this podcast I was listening to in 2023, the end of March, because a light bulb, light bulb, light bulb went off. And that light bulb was, it doesn't matter if the company is, is giving any extra money to you or not. It only matters that you're getting the tax benefit and the optimization of that long-term inside a covered tax-qualified plan. And again, it's better if the company gave you, but give yourself the gift and don't worry about the rest. Smartest thing that you'll ever do. Any way that you can shield taxes and invest uh, in an optimized way, especially where you get that compounding of your money on a regular basis, makes the most sense of anything that you can do. So that's really the, the heart of that part of the discussion I want to have. Next week, Danielle DiMartino Booth. Please follow me on Twitter, Andrew Horowitz, one word. Appreciate that. And uh, we'll be here next week like we do every other week as we enter into April 2023, the next quarter, second quarter, when everybody is predicting that's when the recession starts. Let's see what happens. Thanks for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida, and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.